Welcome to Home is Where the Torah Is, the podcast series recorded in our homes and sent directly to yours. I'm Leon Morris, the president of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. In this series, we get to learn from six members of our talented faculty as they consider Jewish perspectives on the notion of home. Stay tuned after the lecture for a brief conversation in Chavruta I'll be having with Mati Rosenshine, the gifted architect of our new building, as we pick up on an idea or two expressed by our teachers. In today's episode, we will learn from Tova Leah Nachmani as she discusses conflict, intimacy, and shalom bayit. Conflict, intimacy, and shalom bayit. Disagreements, arguments, and conflicts are certainly a normal and perhaps even necessary part of long-term loving relationships. If a couple says they don't disagree or they don't have arguments, they're probably either not being truthful or one of the partners is extremely oppressed and controlled. In theory, a couple that truly doesn't argue cannot have a healthy relationship. When couples think about attaining a deeper level of intimacy, the goal cannot be and should not be to eliminate disagreements. The fact is that individual growth, and also growth as a couple, evolve from productive arguments. Since conflicts are necessary and inevitable, couples must learn to develop the attitudes and skills that enable them to reach what might be termed conflict intimacy. Conflict intimacy sounds like a contradiction in terms, but just like emotional intimacy and physical intimacy, which are associated with healthy long-term relationships, it is equally important to develop conflict intimacy. Conflict intimacy is the couple's ability to deal with even serious disagreements in a healthy, productive manner. This includes even the thorniest disagreements relating to values, money management, relationship needs, politics, raising children, or any issues that a couple encounters. Conflict intimacy is created when two people can openly and constructively voice their hurts, their disappointments, their anger, their pain, and frustrations. According to some researchers, the biggest wall that prevents conflict intimacy is actually defensiveness. We'll talk about that a bit later. Conflict intimacy begins with being there for the partner when he or she is in pain or angry. It is is about being what they call a bigger person. Like a catcher on the baseball field who has to stretch or deep dive in order to catch a foul ball pitched by the pitcher who loses focus. And then the catcher throws the ball back to the pitcher to try again. Both are on the same team. They're here to win together. When a couple is able to reach a healthy level of conflict intimacy, they can actually feel closer after a fight instead of harboring unresolved anger. Unresolved anger chips away at relationships, so that resolving arguments in a way that each partner feels understood and listened to helps the couple grow through the struggles that are necessary for ongoing development of the relationship. So in essence, attaining conflict intimacy can facilitate deeper emotional intimacy and more meaningful physical intimacy, thus the power of making up but only when it comes after an honest and vulnerable process. So I want to learn with you a disturbing and evocative midrash about marital conflict 
as a springboard for discussing this type of intimacy, conflict intimacy. While the Torah prescribes many general directives about how to achieve emotional and physical intimacy between a couple, modern theories of addressing the fine-tunings of personal behavior offer us a whole new level of perspective. So we'll analyze the conflict in the Midrash and then use the story as a test case to offer a model for working through differences that can be volatile. You have this in your source sheet if you would like to follow along. So I divided this Midrash into short scenes, and to make it easier to follow, we'll analyze one scene at a time. I'm going to call this Midrash Inspired and Insulted. Here's how it begins. Scene 1. Rabbi Meir used to give beautiful Torah sermons in the synagogue on Arab Shabbat in a town called Hamat near Tiberias. A certain married woman was standing there listening to him. One time Rabbi Meir extended his teaching and he went overtime. But the woman stayed and she didn't return home until he was finished. When she went home, she found that the Shabbat lamp had gone out. The candle had dwindled, the house was dark. Her husband asked her, where have you been? She told him, I've been sitting and listening to the voice of the Daoshan, the Torah expounder, the rabbi. The husband said to her, I hereby vow, you will not enter this house until you go and spit in the face of the Daoshan, the rabbi. The next scene, we see that she stayed away for one Shabbat, a week, a second, and a third. Where did she go? We don't know. Maybe she took turns staying with the neighbor, with her neighbors. Because the Midrash continues that her neighbors told her, wow, looks like you're still angry at one another after all this time. Maybe you'll let us go with you to the Darshan and speak to him. When Rabbi Meir saw them approach, they came apparently to his Beit Midrash or to the synagogue. He intuited the reason for their coming by means of Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of prophecy. Immediately, he pretended to suffer from pain in his eye. He covered his eye with his hand. Ah! When the woman came in, he saw her and pretended to have a painful eye irritation. He said to the woman, Is there among you a wise woman skilled in reciting an incantation for treating the eye? Her neighbor said to her, Go spit in his face and then you'll be permitted to live with your husband again. So that's what she did. She went and approached the rabbi and sat down before him, cringing in trepidation. She said to him, Rabbi, I do not know how to whisper an incantation for an eye ailment. Rabbi Meir said to her, That's okay. Just spit seven times in my eye, and it will be good for it. And that's what she did. Then he said to her, Now go and tell your husband, You asked me to spit only one time, but I spat seven times. His disciples, Rabbi Meir's disciples who witnessed this, said, Master, Is the Torah to be treated with such contempt that a person can come and spit in the face of a Torah scholar? If only you had told one of us to recite the incantation for you, we would have done so, said his students. And Rabbi Meir replied to them, If so much is done to the holy name of God to bring peace between husband and wife, how much more so can be done to the honor of Meir? What was he referring to? He was referring to a teaching by Rabbi Ishmael who said, So great is peace, shalom bayit, that regarding God's holy name, written in sacred fashion on parchment, 
during the ordeal of the Sota, the woman who had a jealous husband, the Holy One, blessed be he, said, let my name be erased in the water in order to bring about peace between husband and wife. Wow. Clearly, there's been a terrible history of bad communication in this couple. There are so many things wrong with this situation. There are so many things we can um, we can say are problematic and wrong and that we would never want to stand behind. We never want to agree with that kind of behavior. But there are also some literary cues from the Midrash that I want to talk about in a more nuanced way. Let's start like this. The wife returns from her inspiring sermon to a dark home. What is the symbolic significance of the Shabbat lamp that flickers out? The Shabbat lamp's candles were literally for the purpose of Shalom Bait. How so? First of all, in a dark space, a candle or a lamp minimally will prevent us from stepping on each other or bumping into each other, which can be pretty annoying. But more than that, a candle can enable us to see one another's face. And that's very important for relationship. And thirdly, candles also provide a romantic ambiance in the home. The word in Aramaic for light is butzina. In the Zohar, the Kabbalistic tradition, it is a word that's also used for soul. So the light of the husband's soul was extinguished in the long minutes he waited for her to return, perhaps feeling worry, disappointment, and finally insult, because Friday night is traditionally a time that lends itself to marital intimacy. So while the bully here is clearly the man in the story, I want to, um, instead of painting him as a, as a devil, as an evil person, I want to think about them as a couple. I want to think about their strife as a couple. Is there something in his fury and his anger that without feeling she was to blame, without feeling she was to blame, that she could also have been part of? Maybe not at all. Maybe she did not do anything that was out of line. But maybe the woman was so inspired or intrigued by Rabbi Meir's words that she stayed on even when the rabbi went over time in his sermon, in a sense choosing her inspiration from Torah or maybe from Rabbi Meir himself over her husband's desire. Perhaps what also pushes the husband over the top is when he asks her where she has been, she doesn't say, oh, I was in synagogue, I was listening to an intriguing lecture. She doesn't say, oh, I see you're really upset. She says, I was listening to the voice of the rabbi. Kol hadarshan meaning she was drawn in by his charisma, by the dramatic delivery of his lecture. For the husband, that may have added personal insult to injury. Um, what is Rabbi Meir's role in this story? Rabbi Meir's name means the one who gives light, Meir, from the word Or. What is ironic about his name? What is problematic about his teaching just a bit longer than scheduled? The problem is that while enlightening his listeners with his wisdom, his speaking over time was actually an act of disrespect. How much more so on a Friday night when families and couples anticipate being together? What could be the reason that the husband was not at the Torah Suman together with his wife? Is it possible that he was taking care of the children so she could go hear the rabbi's lecture? Or was he perhaps a person who didn't connect to Rabbi Mary's teaching style? Or maybe he was simply anticipating an early night to spend with his wife, and maybe she stayed back to hear the rabbi 
when he began to walk home. It raises a question, which is to what extent was his anger a product of not communicating his needs? Was the husband's ultimatum for her to spit in the rabbi's face appropriate? No, it was outrageous. It was bullying. It was abusive. There's no question that the the man in this story should not have asked his wife to leave home. There's no question about that. And at the same time, if we take a step back from the extremity of the story and we think of them as maybe a normal couple who occasionally loses it, um, we might be able to take a new perspective on it. The Jerusalem Talmud version of this Midrash also has the students of Rabbi Meir saying, why didn't you tell us about this? We would have caught the guy and brought him in for flogging. They also thought it was outrageous and bullying and abusive. Okay, so clearly flogging the husband would not have healed the relationship, but they are making a point about his behavior. If you want to be a man, you have to first be human. You don't kick your wife out of the house. Clearly the man's anger signified an underlying problem, a frustrated want or a need which hadn't been agreed upon, hadn't been expressed by him, and hadn't been agreed upon by his partner. So when someone is angry, the question is, where is it coming from? When we look at someone who's angry, we need to look where the anger is coming from because that is the place for potential communication, for conflict intimacy. Was Rabbi Meir's forfeiting his own honor for the sake of enabling the wife to return home, was that act an act of heroic resolution, as the Midrash seems to portray it, or was it a missed opportunity? So if we want to think about it as a heroic resolution, he was willing to humiliate himself in front of his students and in front of the woman's friends. But also, it was a missed opportunity. Because offering to talk through the incident with the two of them, with the couple, may have done way more for their shalom bait than what actually he did. In the Midrash, the rabbi allowed the woman to spit in his, in his face as for, as a, sorry, for the couple's shalom bait, even comparing himself metaphorically to God, that God is willing for his name to be erased, that in itself is an act of hubris by the Midrash. Perhaps the rabbi realized, or maybe the husband realized, that the rabbi himself needed to be rebuked for his insensitivity to the families who were present at his Friday night lecture. So I want to end with two suggestions. The first is the following. While the students of Rabbi Meir certainly don't validate the husband's behavior, the Midrash Rabbah version thinks there is still something we can learn from the story. And the question is, what is that? So I want to end with two suggestions. While the students of Rabbi Meir certainly don't validate the husband's behavior, the Midrash Rabbah version thinks there still is something we can learn from the story. So while thinking long and hard about this, I had a, a recollection of something that I once read from a beautiful book called Getting the Love You Want by Dr. Harville Hendricks called Closing the Exits. He writes like this, To understand why I ask couples to close their exits, it might be helpful to understand what I mean by an exit and why it is important to, to close them. An exit is acting out one's feelings rather than putting them into language. Whether an exit is disastrous, like an alcohol or drug addiction, um, or whether it's non-catastrophic, such as accepting a non-essential phone call in the middle of a personal conversation with a partner, it still withdraws energy and involvement from the relationship, energy that belongs in the relationship. 
no matter how valid the reasons are for the avoidance behavior. While couples need to empower each other to fulfill their individual needs and seek inspiration as they are drawn to and as they see fit, it is also important that couples gradually close some of their exits when they want to achieve greater intimacy. In order to stop seeking pleasure, which perhaps comes at the expense of their partner. And when their relationship needs are diverted to their children or their jobs, or to a long list of valid outside activities like fitness, friends, and charity fundraising events, it is not always apparent that they they may actually be seeking need gratification outside their relationship. In all these activities, there is validity. But a deeply honest question is, am I doing this activity to avoid spending time with my spouse? Could I cut back a bit, just a bit, on any of these activities in order to make more time for my partner? The next step, which requires much soul-searching and courage, is to put into words the feelings that have been expressed as a behavior. Paradoxically, that begins to close the exit because it restores connection. So this scene may have looked like very, very different with some of these skills, For example, closing an exit could have been an agreement by the husband and wife that at a certain time she comes back from the class or that maybe she doesn't go to class on Friday night but goes at a different time. A wonderfully practical example of some one additional piece of this is brought by Dr. Susan Heitler in her life-changing book, The Power of Two. She says anger is a stop sign. When I think about the anger of the husband, it says stop and seek understanding. In a normative, functional relationship, not an abusive one, in a normative, functional relationship, it is a skill to be able to receive angry comments safely and have them lead to constructive dialogue about a problem that has set off an anger alarm for someone. She recommends a triple A strategy to agree, apologize, and add. First of all, when someone is angry and I can catch that foul ball like my catcher, I can listen for what is right, what makes sense in what my partner is trying to tell me even and especially when they are upset. I can reiterate whatever I can agree with. I can listen especially for what my partner wants. And remember that people feel angry when something they value feels threatened or inaccessible. I can then um, apologize, if there's room to apologize. There isn't always. But you can say, I'm really sorry that you feel that way, or I'm really sorry about that. I can see that coming back late from that lecture gave you the impression that I didn't care about spending time together. I'm sorry for not being more considerate. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I feel badly to have disappointed you. And lastly, to ask if there's something that I can add about my perspective, because here I'm being the bigger person when my partner is angry. If I ask, can can I also add something? And then if they hear me, they will have, right, I will have earned their trust by listening to them, paving the way to deepen our relationship through conflict. So we use conflict as an opportunity to better understand our spouse. And this requires a fundamental shift from what most people do during conflict, which is attempt to change the other person's mind or to respond defensively. This is the reason that we are married, because we wanted to better understand this person that we're married to, that we've committed to spend our lives with. Luckily, doing so means we will also gain a better understanding of ourselves. This is Leon Morris. I'm sitting here with Mati Rosenshine, the architect of Pardes's new home, Beit Karen. Hello, Mati. Hello, and thank you for having me. Great to have you back. In her beautiful Shior on Shlom Bayit, 
Tova Lea Nachmani talks about the power of seeing the face of the other. How will your design of the new Pardes, Pardes's new home, how will it foster a sense of encounter and connection between people? One of the uh, challenges in uh, transitioning from a smaller campus to a larger building uh, is, is how to maintain a sense of uh, family and a, a true sense of connectivity uh, where there are more classrooms and, and, and more programmatic components. How do we still maintain the desire to, to have a very strong connection between people? Um, and I would say that, uh, first of all, the circulation scheme or, or how circulation takes place within the building is the key to, to achieving that. Um, starting from the street and how people enter the building and how people exit the building is, is the first step. Once the building is entered, um, how, how people uh, move between the various floors. And as we call it, the horizontal and the vertical circulation through the building uh, is the key. And we have treated that as a uh, spine through which people will always encounter other people. And along that spine, we are trying to locate um, many informal spaces where people can bump into each other um, and people can connect with each other, um, not only on one level, but a sort of three-dimensional spine, which will allow people to see each other between the various floors. Um, and to achieve this, there are certain sort of atrium spaces and double height spaces, but I think the key is to make sure that these spaces still maintain a certain sense of intimacy. Acoustic uh, solutions, visual solutions um, will have to be uh, arrived at, but the idea that people will move through these spaces and be able to sit around these spaces uh, with small informal groups, and, and, and have informal study sessions, uh, open cubicles, uh, eating spaces. Um, one of the uh, important uh, uh, features or components of, of Pardes is the, the garden in the back. Um, and we have been making a huge effort to integrate this garden and viewing it as, almost as a, an urban campus green. And um, we've been making efforts to reconcile the various uh, heights of, of, the, uh, of the landscape. So it will sort of run into the building. So there will be a very strong connection between the green outside, the more private zone, outdoor zone of Pardes, and how it connects to the cafeteria, and how it connects to the horizontal circulation along the campus, and how the horizontal connection links up to the vertical connection. So we're, we're, we're putting a great emphasis on making sure that there's uh, the opportunity for lots of informal connectivity. Um, I want to ask about that in two other parts of the building. Uh, first, the Beit Midrash, which is the heart of, of our building, the, the study hall. Um, it's the place of chavruta study, of, of study between, uh, between two. 
and uh, and yet it's not only the study between two and and just a little bit if you could share with us some of your thinking of the different kinds of human connection that will uh, take place in the Beit Midrash and that the Beit Midrash itself will encourage by, by its design. Okay, so um, as you say, the Beit Midrash is, is perhaps uh, one of the most important, uh, important spaces in the building, um, and it is uh, to uh, contain many students simultaneously. Uh, and so we have perceived that space on one hand as a very large open space that no matter where a person is sitting and studying, they can always see the bima or the main speaker. And so on one hand, there can be large gatherings um, where a speaker can address everyone. And at the same time, we're conceiving that space as one that will primarily around its perimeter be broken up to more intimate spaces that visually still connect to the main space. That those intimate spaces will be in varying scales and sizes where smaller groups can study and then break from the study and address the larger space or the, lar or the speaker at the same time. Those in intimate spaces will have lower ceilings. They will be perhaps wrapped with books um, and very conducive to, to, to more intimate study spaces. Um, there will be a gallery in the uh, Beit Midrash as well, um, which will allow, um, as I said, for, for all the participants to, to partake uh, in, the, in, the, in the main study or the main discussion and also more intimate groups of study. And what about the connection between uh, the administration and their offices, our offices, and uh, the students and the faculty. Um, in what way do you see the, the value of facilitating human connection playing out in sort of the back end of uh, the operations of Pardes? So um, in, in, in earlier schematic plans, the uh, uh, student lounge, for example, was, was at the back of the facility um, close to the garden. Um, but it was a little bit detached. And at a certain point, we realized that uh, perhaps the student lounge is, is one of the most important spaces to generate connectivity. And we actually moved the student lounge to the front of the building and provided a very large terrace from that student lounge to the street and positioned the student lounge and that terrace along the main circulation access and all of those adjacent to the administration. Um, from the, or, or, or reflecting the belief that there should be very strong connectivity between faculty and administrative people and students. And we sort of, in an organized way, have tried to bring them all together and mix them up in such a way that those incidental encounters are, um, are always going to be possible. Thank you so much, Mati.